Hi guys, I hope you have been doing well since I last um, have spoken to you via our podcasts here. Um, today, we are going to look at the origins of the Cold War, what the Cold War was. Um, you've already looked a little bit at some videos um, in that regard, um, but we're going to go through some notes over them, um, and we are going to uh, kind of... Uh, just put on paper what exactly uh, the Cold War is. Now, as you guys might have realized, since I have this as the assignment for today, which is Wednesday, you're not having an exam. So I would like you guys to just listen to this. You don't need to write anything down, but follow along with the PowerPoint uh, so that you can be good citizens that know what the Cold War is. Um, Not having an exam. Today, we're going to talk about the Cold War. Um, the origins of the Cold War. My goal for tomorrow is to look at the Vietnam War. Um, I might also try and have us look at the civil rights movement a little bit. I'm trying to decide basically uh, what is going to be the most, uh, they're both very important, Um, what is going to be the most uh, important thing for us to do for our last day, because on Friday you're having a project work day, if you recall. Um, So today we'll look at the origins of the Cold War, uh, where the Cold War came from, what the word even, the term I should say even means, as well as some of the major events that take place in these early years. You learned about the Berlin Airlift yesterday, you learned about the foundation of the Kim Dynasty in uh, North Korea yesterday. Um, So today we're kind of just going to pull it all together. Let's go to slide number two. Um, Right before the war ended, as in World War II war, um, from July 17th to August 2nd, 1945, the three allied leaders, you see Winston Churchill, Harry Truman, as well as Joseph Stalin uh, here, they met at a city called Potsdam in Germany to discuss the future of Europe um, after w- the war. Keep in mind that Hitler committed suicide in April. Um, uh, Mussolini, who is the uh, premier of Italy, he is dead. Um, so basically, they need to divide up how uh, what Europe is going to look like so that war doesn't happen again. Um, they all have different goals. Um, so Truman and uh, Churchill want to make the West and Europe safe for democracy. Um, they also want to uh, stop the spread of communism, which is has been taking place in Russia and states closest to Russia. Um, Stalin wants to continue the spread of communism because in his opinion, if he can spread communism to other countries, they can serve as a buffer between um, him and the Western countries. So this is very much uh, when you see Stalin and when you see uh, Truman and um, uh, Churchill together, uh, Truman and Churchill get along well. They have similar countries, the UK and the US. Um, Stalin and his role with Russia is very much going to be, he's there because of World War II. They're not actually buddy-buddy. So keep in mind that there's really no friendship loss between these, uh, Stalin and the other two. At this conference, the United States hints at the fact that they are in uh, possession of a powerful new weapon. They don't say what it is, um, but they 
make a very large, uh, they drop a very large hint that something is in the works um, and that this weapon is going to be used against Japan if they choose not to uh, surrender. Uh, when they're doing this, they're talking to the USSR, they're talking to Stalin, the Soviet Union. Um, and in fact, it's only on the day that they drop the atomic bomb that the U.S. is actually going to let Stalin know what exactly this new weapon is. And then, of course, they get to see this new weapon in action. Um, some of the thought as to whether the atomic bomb was, why the atomic bomb was dropped, um, recently, the idea of ending the war has taken kind of a backseat to this idea that the U.S. wants to intimidate the USSR, and so that's why they dropped the atomic bomb um, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Whether that is in fact the case, uh, historians have been arguing about that for many uh, decades. Uh, basically, the USSR leaves the Potsdam Conference with the goal of, uh, if it's going to survive as a communist state and as an independent state, they need to force other countries or lead other countries into becoming communists as well, so that there's uh, more of them than there is of the Western allies. Let's go to slide three. Britain and, and France um, have been fighting in this war since 1939. The United States, if you recall, doesn't actually join until the end of 1941. They don't have boots on the ground until 1942. And so as you can imagine, after six years of fighting, um, Britain and France are exhausted. They have drained treasuries. Um, there is Winston Churchill loses the election for prime minister in like 1945, uh, which is a shocking defeat. Um, but that just kind of goes to show how even though he is a war hero for a wartime leader, um, there is very much a distrust in these pre-war powers. Germany is basically gone. It's been divided up um, by the allies. So Germany is divided into West Germany, um, which uh, the Allies essentially control, and then East Germany, uh, which is essentially controlled by the USSR, though they have their own government there. Uh, the capital of Berlin is divided up into quarters. There is East Berlin, which is controlled by um, East Germany. You have uh, the US quarter, the British quarter, and the French quarter of Berlin as well. But if you look at this map, you're going to see when you look at East Germany, there's a little um, kind of dot in the middle. That's Berlin. And so Berlin is very much in the center of East Germany. That's why there needs to be a Berlin airlift, because it doesn't actually touch any West German land. And so in order to actually feed the West Germans, or the West Berliners, I should say, um, they need to constantly be airlifting supplies and food into the uh, city. The two most powerful countries after the war are the United States and the Soviet Union. Uh, the Soviet Union has proved itself as being a major fighting force. They have updated their military, unlike what their military looked like during World War I, albeit they have taken uh, large casualties. Think of the Battle of Stalingrad, which is the largest uh, loss of life in world history. Uh, I think it's like two million people die at the Battle of Stalingrad. Um, so the Soviet Union has proved itself, certainly, um, as a very important country, but at quite a cost. 
Um, the United States has proved itself as well. In addition, they've made a lot of money during the war because they were selling weapons to other countries. Um, so whereas the rest of Europe has a lot of economic issues after the war, the U.S. actually enters the, 19, the rest of the 1940s and the 50s and is in pretty good economic shape. So they're really able to uh, shape the destiny of the world. That being said, they're concerned about this influence that the Soviet Union has. The Soviet Union is not very uh, quiet about the fact that it wants to make a buffer between itself and the West. And neither side fully trusts one another. Uh, the West is concerned that the Soviet Union is going to make everyone communist. And then the Soviet Union is concerned that the West is going to try and take it over. Um, so... Uh, the Soviet Union tries to infiltrate these newly formed Western, I'm sorry, Eastern European countries uh, into joining their sphere. You start to see elections take place uh, during uh, this post-war period. And whether by force or by um, uh, kind of just infiltrating the uh, psyche of the people, the Soviet Union comes out pretty much on top in many of these elections. Let's go to slide four. Uh, Pro-communist powers took over many of these Eastern European governments. Uh, they destroyed political rivals and assassinated people who didn't agree with communism. Um, and by 1948, many of these countries that you see in Eastern Europe, uh, with a couple of exceptions, have essentially just turned communist. Um, so you can see on this map that there's all those countries that are not actually part of Russia, but they are aligned with the Soviet Union politically. They're creating a buffer now between the countries in blue, which are uh, free democratic states. There's mistrust between all these countries, and as a result, we call this period the Cold War. There's not actually a direct war between these countries. Uh, France and Russia, and Britain and Russia, and the United States and Russia never fight a battle with each other against each other. However, they do fight battles in other countries. Um, so, for instance, U.S. backed forces in one country might back Soviet backed for, or might fight Soviet backed forces in that same country. So, those are called proxy wars when you're not actually fighting another country uh, out in the open, uh, but you're backing other people to kind of fight your battles for you. And so, this is a cold war because it is it's definitely a conflict but nothing actually conflagrates into full-out war during this period. And this is going to last until the early 90s. The fall of the Berlin Wall takes place in 1989, um, and then the Soviet Union and the Soviet states throughout 1989, 1990, and 1991, uh, one by one, they collapse and become democracies, or sort of democracies. Uh, Stalin, at this point, promises he's going to hold free elections. However, he reneges on that promise because he wants to create his buffer state, and so he kind of forces them to accept communism. Let's go to slide five. So the United States is kind of left with a problem. Eastern Europe and those former countries that were being fought over during World War II are now kind of basically communist, and he wants to stop other countries from turning communist as well. 
Um, so Harry Truman develops a strategy called containment in which the United States is attempting to induce countries to remain like themselves, Western capitalist democracies. Because if you have another capitalist country, you have people you can trade with, you have allies of a war is going to be fought. Um, it's mu just all around much better uh, for peace and for the economy. And so Truman, as well as his government, go about many different ways to keep this policy of containment uh, important and in the limelight, um, and to use the United States resources and wealth in order to induce people not to become communists. Let's go to slide six. One such way is called the Marshall Plan. Uh, this is, uh, George Marshall is, uh, he was a general during World War II. Um, the plan is named after him. I believe he's the Secretary of State uh, during this period. Um, the goal of the Marshall Plan is that uh, the United States would essentially give money and aid packages uh, and food packages and relief packages to uh, European countries that chose to stay Western democracies. Now, you might be like, why are we just giving our money away? Well, the goal of this is to help these countries rebuild themselves um, so that they can stay capitalist, so that they can stay democracies, so that they can stay our allies, so that we have trading partners. So it might be a uh, large investment up front in the 1940s, but as we can see uh, today, uh, the countries that accepted this money are countries like Italy, France, um, uh, the United Kingdom, uh, West Germany. Uh, these are countries that today are fully functioning democracies that are our greatest trading partners and allies. Um, so the Marshall Plan is going to actually do a really good job at keeping these countries um, uh, within the United States sphere, and later on providing us with allies we can trade with. If there hadn't been a Marshall Plan, so if we had just said, oh, well, these people can just bail themselves out, um, who's to say if these countries, number one, would be capitalist democracies, and number two, would help us make all this money we've made off of trading with them uh, in the past 75 years? The money is supposed to be used towards rebuilding, so building buildings, because uh, lots of buildings were destroyed during the war, uh, lots of institutions were destroyed during the war, as well as providing food and financial support to the citizens of these countries. In addition, people in countries tend to like countries that uh, um, provide aid to them. So this is going to give the American military, as well as the American government, a big PR boost in uh, Europe. Slide 7. Uh, the next thing the United States did was also uh, in, with the aim of combating against the USSR, but it's more military. They establish a treaty organization called NATO, which stands for North Atlantic Treaty Organization. This is an intragovernmental uh, organization committed to the collective defense of all the people that join it. Now, what does that mean? So it's in between uh, all these different governments. Um, so, like, for instance, uh, Britain joined, France joined, Denmark joined, Norway joined, Portugal joined. All these different governments are connected to NATO and they take part in NATO. And it is collective defense. If one of those countries is attacked, everyone else must come and help them. 
Um, so if the United States is attacked by the Soviet Union, then France, Denmark, uh, Norway, Portugal, uh, they need to come and assist uh, the United States. Only once has this ever actually been used, and that was after 9-11, um, when uh, the United States was attacked, and so NATO did airstrikes in Afghanistan in order to root out uh, the Taliban and al-Qaeda. Uh, the USSR, we're going to see on slide eight, uh, is worried about NATO because if it wants to attack one of these smaller countries in, um, uh, in Europe, then they risk um, the United States and NATO getting involved. And so they set up their own pact called the Warsaw Pact, in which all of their little friends in Eastern Europe are once again going to join together in a collective defense treaty. So if the West attacks, for instance, Ukraine, then everyone else in the Warsaw Pact is going to uh, attack that country. And then once again, you have NATO, who since their country has now been attacked, is now going to collectively get involved in the defense of that other country. So you throughout this period have uh, in the back of everyone's minds that if you do anything that might antagonize someone, this could lead to another world war. This never actually happens. They never actually face off in a military confrontation. However, there's always a fear that the Warsaw Pact and NATO might possibly lead to um, military issues. Let's go to slide nine. The U.S. focused primarily on uh, Europe in the post-war period. Um, however, while they were focusing on Europe, communism spread across uh, Asia. China had lost its monarchy in 1912 and had become a republic. Um, however, in the pre-World War II period, they were pretty much kicked around by Japan. Um, and one of the leaders that came out of the pre-World War II period um, and during World War II is going to be the Chinese Communist Party, who is consistent in its battle against the Japanese. Uh, the Chinese Civil War takes place when the Chinese Communist Party and the Nationalist Party fight one another um, for control of the country. The communists win in 1949, and suddenly, uh, without really uh, anyone outside of China and Chinese affairs taking much of any like any notice of it, China is now the uh, is communist. It is the world's most populous country. It's a large economy, and it is now a communist country, and it is now obviously an ally of the Soviet Union. This is an issue for the United States, um, and. Because this occurred, the United States is going to be even more vigilant on other countries that might possibly want to become communist as well. Now, this is very different from what China's political and economic policies are today. Um, so you always hear China is communist today. Um, yes, China also today has some capitalist tendencies, and they have since the 1980s and the 1990s. So today, China is kind of a mixed economy in which they outwardly state they are communist, but they do have some Western things because they've adopted some Western things. Um, now, uh, I'm sorry, back in 1949, China was pure communist, um, and they, as a result, face a lot of the same problems that the USSR is going to face, or would did face, um, when the Russian Revolution took place. We'll talk more about that, however, when you get to world history next year. We're not going to linger on that for too long. Let's go to slide 10. You guys listen to why uh, the Koreas or why the Kim family in North Korea came to power um, 
during this period yesterday. Uh, following the fall of China to communists, uh, the United States realized it basically had to take Asia seriously or more seriously than it had been. They'd been focusing pretty much exclusively on Europe. Um, the USSR had previously had control of the northern half of the Korean Peninsula following World War II. Um, they set up a communist government in uh, North Korea. And in 1950, North Korea invaded South Korea, which had been uh, backed by the Western powers. The U.S. and its allies went to Korea and defended South Korean uh, political autonomy, um, as you can see in slide 11. Uh, 21 other countries or 20 other countries decided to also assist the South Koreans. So the United States is once again at war about five years after World War II takes place. Um, the Korean War, as it is called, is oftentimes called the Forgotten War um, because unfortunately Korean War veterans uh, don't usually get as much recognition as veterans of, for instance, World War II and veterans of the Vietnam War, which were much larger and much longer conflicts unfortunately. Um, the capital of Korea, Seoul, changed uh, hands four times uh, during the war. Neither side was able to actually gain an advantage. And basically, the Vietnam, I'm sorry, the Korean War uh, had to be just ended uh, in a stalemate. Uh, China and Russia were backing the North Koreans. The U.S. and like Britain and France were backing the South Koreans. So once again, they never actually fight against one another, the U.S. and the USSR. However, they will use other countries in which to kind of uh, to further their influence and their interests during this period. So that's why it's a Cold War. Let's go to slide 12. The fighting ended in 1953 when an armistice was signed. Uh, dividing the country at the 38th parallel, they're technically still at war with one another. There's never been a treaty that ended the war. Um, so technically, um, this is still an armed border. You don't want to cross the, it's called the DMZ, the demilitarized zone. Um, but there is, other than them shooting like rockets at one another occasionally, there's not any uh, current um political or military uh, issues between them, but this is still a war. Um, they're still technically at war with one another, so they usually aren't going to break that because they don't want the potential of their country being taken over by the other, uh, but North and South Korea still are not fully uh, happy with one another. The northern half of the country is nominally communist and totalitarian, um, no, I say nominally, that means in name. Um, North no, Communism is a far left uh, thing. North Korea also has a lot of um, far right uh, things that they have in their government. So they're really totalitarian regardless of what actual political philosophy uh, they want to follow. Uh, when the Russian, when the Soviet Union collapsed in uh, 1991, um, and China started to become more capitalist. Once again, just a little bit more. They're still not all there. Um, North Korea found that it had a lot of issues um, with its communist identity, uh, particularly there were famines throughout the 1990s, and they no longer had the Soviet Union uh, propping them up and trying to help them. 
Um, so since then, uh, the North Korea has been a pretty miserable place to live where there's constant famine. Um, there's very little incentive for people to uh, improve their situation, nor is there really any way for them to do so because the economy is not very good and not very fully developed. Um, and once again, the Kim family is totalitarian, so they basically control every single aspect about the country if they want to. The southern half, on the other hand, it started off um, kind of as authoritarian, immediately following the war in order to keep order. Um, since the 1980s and the 1990s, um, South Korea has become a democracy, and it is a capitalist country. It's called. It's one of the four, they're called Asian Tigers, along with Singapore, um, uh, Hong Kong, and uh, I believe Japan is the other one, um, in which it is an Asian country that uh, in the last half century uh, has essentially become one of the most important economies in the world. Um, and South Korea is still to this day a very uh, important ally to the United States. Uh, U.S. troops are still there. They're also still in Japan. I think I mentioned that. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, U.S. troops are still in South Korea um, in the early 90s, uh, I believe the early 90s, my aunt and uncle were both stationed um, in South Korea. Uh, it must have actually been the late 80s. Yeah, they were both stationed in South Korea, just kind of keeping the peace, doing their thing. All right, so this is your um, what is the Cold War uh, session. Um, tomorrow we are going to uh, touch on um, civil rights, most likely. Maybe we'll try and get some Vietnam in there. Um, I content myself in that you're going to be learning all of this when you get to high school in any case. So the stuff that we are missing, um, you will learn it at another point, even if we weren't able to do it this year uh, due to the shortened class times and so on and so forth. So um, once again, you don't have an exam anymore. Um, you're just going to have uh, listening to uh, today's lecture as well as tomorrow's lecture. Please keep in mind your projects to do at 11.59 on Friday. If you are doing a paper, please submit it to turn it in by that point. If you are doing a podcast, please uh, email it to me by that point. Uh, or if you're doing um, an artwork, like take a picture of it and email it to me. Um, once again, with artworks or any like um, artifacts, uh, picture of it picture of you holding it as well, please. That is a requirement. I need you to do that. You're going to get points taken off if you do not do that. Um, so do that. That's all due at 11.59 on Friday. I will probably grade them next week, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and that'll be your final grade in the grade book. Um, in any case, I hope you guys have a great day. Uh, hope you're looking forward to your summer break. Uh, and the, I wonder what changes that'll bring to your day. I guess not having to come on here and listen to me, even if you're not going to school. In any case, have a great day. Uh, enjoy yourself. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye.